It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? I know you're a big fan of koozies, so <laughs> I've got a great story for you. Koozies? Just just go with it. It's a good setup. So you know how we've had so many good business ideas since starting this show? Definitely. We had Amish dust. We had remote control condoms. Well, I think we need to try and apply for some government money to get these things off the ground. So you really think we'd have a shot? Well, that's where the koozies come in. <laughs> so just a couple of years ago, two students at the University of Washington were doing some pretty cool research on how foam koozies help keep a can cold in the summer heat. And you know how much they got from the National Science Foundation to explore this? $1.3 million. What? <laughs> You're making that up. I'm not. And it turns out that there's a little more to the story than just that headline and that the study was part of an effort to learn more about climate change. But it's more fun to ignore the important sciencey stuff and just say $1.3 million to study koozies. <laughs> and I'm sure we could come up with a bigger, more noble cause behind our ideas. But it does make you wonder, what are the weirdest things our government has invested in? And that's what we'll be talking about today. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And today, we're breaking out our calculators and taking a hard look at questions on government spending. What exactly does the U.S. budget pay for? And more importantly, what's the weirdest stuff our country has ever invested in? And to talk about that, we've got a few fun guests today. Who's going to be joining us today, Mango? Today, we'll be joined by James Ledbetter, author and editor of Inc. Magazine. And he's got this great new book, One Nation Under Gold where he digs into Operation Goldfinger, this bizarre secret federal plan from the 60s that tried to sniff out gold in strange places. And we're also going to talk to a couple of coin collectors who know a thing or two about uh, unusual investments. They're going to give us a lowdown on some of their best finds, and in return, we'll put them to the test. All right. Well, that sounds like a fair trade. So to kind of dip our toes into this topic, I thought we should first address what most people already know about government spending, which it turns out isn't a whole lot. Now, plenty of us could probably point to health care and national defense as big parts of the U.S. budget. But beyond that, the specifics actually get a little hazy for most people. Yeah, sad but true. The Pew Research Center did the study back in 2014 that really helped illustrate just how little we know about where our money goes. Pew polled Americans on what they knew about current events and issues in the news. And while the average respondent was fairly knowledgeable about many of the topics, when it came to how much the government spent on particular programs— most people were pretty clueless. So when they were polled, what, what were they asked about? <laughs> well, respondents were asked how much money they thought the government spent on four programs. It was uh, foreign aid, transportation, Social Security, and paying down interest on the national debt. Or rather, they were asked to put them in order from like largest to smallest. So at 33%, the majority of people said we spend the most money on foreign aid, followed by interest on the national debt. That was at uh, 26%. 20% thought Social Security received the most money, and only 4% named transportation as the top expense. All right, so I'm guessing that's a little off. So what, what's the actual breakdown? 
Well, Social Security nets the most money of the programs on the list by far. It received $944 billion in the fiscal year of 2016. And that's roughly 17 times the annual spending on foreign aid. Wow. It's also 9.5 times the amount spent on transportation and almost three and a half times the amount spent on interest for the national debt. So people underestimated how much we spend on Social Security, and they also severely overestimated the money we devote to foreign aid. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. Well, that, that's that's very interesting. How do you think we should reconcile the fact that Social Security always ranks as you know one of the most popular government programs among Americans? Well, foreign aid consistently ranks as the least popular spending category. I think it really points to how our preconceived notions and political opinions can color the way we view the world, including our nation's spending habits. Well, how is that? Well, we tend to assume the worst about our government spending, and I think that's because we're aware in this really broad sense that the country burns through a lot of money and that the national debt is this, like, sky-high number that's unimaginable, but it's always on the rise, even if we don't know the specifics. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like we take the pessimistic approach, and, you know, it's easy to imagine our government that we must spend the least amount on programs we like and the most on ones we don't like, and I guess that's kind of human nature, too. Exactly. But a closer look shows that the worst case mentality doesn't always add up. For example, foreign aid. That's the program that tops the chart in terms of unpopularity. But in reality, it only accounts for roughly 1% of the total federal budget. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have guessed that. All right. So let's set the record straight on this. And once again, it's Pew Research to the rescue here. So they broke down how the U.S. government spent its $3.95 trillion budget last year. And according to their senior writer, Drew DeSilver, Our country is basically a giant insurance company that also has a defense gig on the side. (laughs) So we spend most of our money on health care and the national defense. Oh, definitely. About 70 percent of the total budget went for different kinds of social insurance. So that would include Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare, unemployment compensation, veterans benefits, all of the things kind of like this. Now, another 15 percent of total spending went for national defense Interest payments, uh, national debt came in at looks like 6%, and education and related services made up less than 3%. So I, I'm just looking at the numbers on your uh, page here. So 70, 15, 6, 3, that's only 94%. Where's the other 6? Well, that's the crazy thing. Every other program, whether that's national parks, public broadcasting, foreign aid, NASA, you name it, All of those fit into the remaining 6% of the federal budget. (laughs) Which is all the stuff we squabble about, but it's all the fun stuff, too. I know it's a pretty sweet 6%, and it's inside that 6% that we're going to be focused on today. Yeah, but again, the worthiness of those programs is up for debate depending on who you ask, right? So we're not going to get into that debate. If you haven't noticed, we typically avoid big political statements here on the show. But we do love to dig up the most interesting facts, so that's what we're going to stay focused on. Right. Well, we definitely see federal spending running into the same problems we face as individuals. You know, what to buy at the grocery store, how much of your income should go to entertainment versus savings. Most people aren't going to agree on this stuff. And the fact is, not everyone wants to spend their money in the same way. And that causes pretty big headaches when you're spending from a pot to which every taxpayer contributes. Sure, and that's why you'll never reach a consensus on certain line items, like... For example, whether or not it was a wise move for the government to invest $90,000 to promote Vidalia Onions as part of a promotional campaign for the fourth Shrek movie. (laughs) $90,000? I think we can all agree that sounds like a really bizarre use of money. Don't tell me that actually happened. It did, but I'm not so sure the campaign was a waste. Like, according to the Vidalia Onion Committee, which is a real (laughs) committee. I was going to call you out on that one. (laughs) Onion sales were up 50% thanks to the Shrek promotion. Wow. And that's a huge deal here in Georgia where agricultural makes up like a good chunk of the economy. By the way, did you know even more than that was spent in 2012 to help Idaho promote their caviar? It's like (laughs) $300,000. Idaho caviar. (laughs) Again, it was to help the local farmers in rural areas. Onions and caviar, yummy. (laughs) All right, fair enough. But but here's another one for you, unrelated to food. So in 2010, the government gave $615,000 to the University of California at Santa Cruz So they could digitize Grateful Dead memorabilia. How crazy is this? That's over (laughs) half a million in federal funds that went to digitally preserving old Grateful Dead concert tickets, T-shirts, and posters of dancing teddy bears. I mean, maybe it's just me, but that seems a little tougher to defend. (laughs) I feel like we're going to get a ton of angry emails from deadheads now. By the way, I was on Wikipedia the other day, and I found this incredible page of what fans are called. 
And so, uh, do you know what Barry Manilow's fans are called? What's that? They're called Thanalos. <laughs> and Chris Pine's fans, they're called Pine Nuts. Oh, well, I already knew that. I'm a huge Pine Nut. <laughs> Maybe I didn't know that. But, I mean, I see your point, right? Like, expenses like the Shrek Onion promotion and a federally funded Grateful Dead archive, they're tough to justify because they tend to benefit a much smaller segment of the population than... You know, something like Medicare. Well, it's definitely an eye of the beholder kind of thing. And some programs will seem like good investments to you and others won't. And there's bound to be a lot of disagreement among people as to which are which. Absolutely. So one of my favorite examples of that disparity in thinking comes from this weird research study from 2005. Biologists at Yale University received a federal grant to study the reproductive anatomy of ducks and namely the male duck's unique corkscrew-shaped privates, Hmm. (laughs) right? So, like, pundits and politicians were all over this, and they touted the study as, like, a particularly egregious case of wasteful government spending, so much so that the lead researcher, and her name was um, Patricia Brennan, she actually came forward to defend her work for the public. Oh, really? What what did she say? Yeah, it's a pretty great statement, actually, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Quote, This is basic science. The headlines reflect outrage that the study was about duck genitals, as if there's something inherently wrong or perverse with this line of research. Imagine if medical research drew the line at the belt. Genitalia, dear readers, are where the rubber meets the road evolutionarily. (laughs) That's a statement. (laughs) What a great quote there. But you know, that kind of dismissive attitude is, it's actually pretty common when dealing with research projects that can admittedly sound a little nutty when taken in isolation. In fact, there are a few senators who've made it a yearly tradition to publish waste books, as they call them. These detail hundreds of what they deem to be the worst cases of wasteful spending for a given year. I should note that the 2016 waste book was titled Porkemon Go. (laughs) It's pretty great, huh? But while these reports always make some fair points, they also tend to ridicule grants for quirky research and present them without mention of their connections to the broader fields of legitimate study. Yeah, and I want to make sure we don't fall prey to that same temptation. But that said, there are definitely other parts of the federal budget that seem wasteful no matter the context. What do you say we look at some of the strangest cases of clear-cut waste, along with a few more examples that skirt the line between impractical and outright crazy? All right, well, that sounds good to me. Why don't we start with Operation Goldfinger, which seems like a prime candidate for the outright crazy category. Why don't we see if we can get our first guest on the line to talk through it? Our guest today is the editor of Inc. Magazine and the author of a new book titled One Nation Under Gold, How One Precious Metal Has Dominated the American Imagination for Four Centuries. It's a terrific book, and with today's episode being focused on weird government investments, we're going to focus this conversation on an incredibly bizarre effort known as Operation Goldfinger. James Ledbetter, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, James, can you help us set the stage for our listeners? So it's the early 1960s. What is the state of gold at this point? So when World War II was coming to an end, the major powers of the world gathered in New Hampshire in Bretton Woods to hammer out a new monetary system for the globe. Uh, And that system had at its heart the convertibility of the dollar to gold at the rate of $35 an ounce. So in theory, anyone with $35 could go to the United States Treasury and get an ounce of gold. And anybody with an ounce of gold could go to the United States Treasury and get $35. That Every other currency in the world was then pegged to the dollar, and the dollar was fully convertible to gold. Hmm. This system worked pretty well. It arguably worked too well in the sense that the growth of Western Europe and Japan starting in the late 40s through the 1950s was so rapid and extensive that you now have all of these dollars out in the world and dollar-backed securities that if they were to be redeemed at the same time at that treasury window, there would be no more gold. And that was considered to be an absolute disaster that had to be prevented because it would it would bring the whole system crumbling down. And that's not because we didn't have any gold. Right. We had amassed the largest stockpile of gold known to mankind, but it still wasn't enough to deal with all of the dollars that were out there. And so with this problem being very well known by the country's leaders and the Federal Reserve, there was a kind of desperation about what to do. And so on top of that, you have 
pressure coming from the United States gold mining industry, the, the keeping the value of gold at $35 an ounce was very depressing to the U.S. gold industry. It's a little analogous to like oil companies. When oil is at $20 a barrel, it's really not worth their time to drill in certain places or to go where you need to do fracking. At $100 a barrel, it makes a lot more sense. But with a price fixed at $35, most of the gold that was easily accessible in the United States uh, had already been tapped out. Mm-hmm. And, and so the question is, well, what could be done to get more gold? And a strange combination of high-placed Treasury officials, uh, LBJ's science and technology advisor, and some sympathetic members of Congress cooked up this scheme in the mid-60s that because it's the mid-60s, what else are they going to call it? Operation Goldfinger. <laughs> right. And the idea, the idea was to use state-of-the-art technology to basically find gold where it had never been found before. Mm-hmm. So you had, and this is all completely top secret. There was no congressional debate. There was no budget line item for it. You know, there wasn't like people say, oh yeah, let's, let's, uh, Let's sign off on the on the on the alchemy quest. Um, it was completely hush hush because they were afraid. Uh, they 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 believed that there was so much gold that they could find that it would it, it essentially you know double or triple the amount of gold already uh, mined in the world. That's that's so. It's like, one of the things I say is it's not like discovering a new gold mine. This was like they thought discovering a new planet. Wow. And that they. they Felt that that if if that got out, it might be so disruptive to the world's central banks that it, it could cause you know any number of economic problems. Yeah, yeah. And so, what were some of the weirdest places that they started looking for gold? It feels like this insane exploratory mission. Yeah. So, so there were there were kind of three parts to Operation Goldfinger. The the first part involved using state-of-the-art technology to see if there is in fact gold in places where it had traditionally not been looked for. So, for example, uh, is there gold in the ash that comes out of coal plants? Is there gold in certain types of, um, of plants and flowers? Is there gold in animal brains? Is there gold in deer antlers? Is there gold in seawater? Um, literally dozens and dozens of projects uh, all across the country and internationally to find out if there's some, you know, kind of hidden source of gold. And this is almost comical. This is the, a, 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 an instant of when science kind of gets in the way of wisdom um, because the, the, the technology was really great. The, the, the fact is there are traces of gold in lots of places, mm-hmm. but at parts per million or parts per billion to get the gold out of the deer antler would cost way more than $35. (laughs) So it really wasn't a solution, even though, yeah, it was kind of there. The the second component of Operation Goldfinger, uh, again, goes back to this idea that we know where the gold is, but all of the gold that can be easily and profitably mined in location X has already been mined out. There's a very good chance that there's more gold underneath there, but it's not really accessible um, at $35 an ounce if you use conventional explosives. Mm -hmm. But what if... What if we put nuclear explosives in the ground <laughs> and blast out the gold and then leach it out with a with a with a chemical? And this this was a very enticing idea in the in the mid sixties. There were a lot of government scientists who really believed in what were called the the peaceful uses of atomic energy. Um, it was a somewhat naive time in the sense that people were not paying a lot of attention to radioactivity, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a bit of a problem. Uh, but there were a number of uh, experiments that were conducted using nuclear weapons to, to move large amounts of Earth. And, and it, was, it was kind of in the books to do this for mining purposes. But by the time the word started to get out and some of the more um, uh, kind of conscious scientists, uh, the, the, the program was eventually scrapped before it actually took the form of, uh, of using nuclear weapons for, for gold mining. 
Um, and then the third component, which really didn't get too far beyond the conceptual stage, um, but let's call it what it is, was to turn base metals into gold. It was nothing short of a 20th century alchemy proposal. And here again, the science kind of outpaced people's understanding of things. You can do this. It, it can be done. Glenn Seaborg, who was for many years the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, and there's, there's elements named after him. He's, he discovered a number of elements. Very distinguished scientists actually did this in 1980. Uh, you, could, you could take very, very thin foil of bismuth and bombard it with a proton beam, and it displaces electrons so that some of what is remaining uh, is in fact an isotope of gold. So you can create gold out of base metals. But again, here's the problem. When Seaborg did this, he estimated that to produce gold by this method would cost approximately one quadrillion dollars per ounce. <laughs> so again, uh, as a way of replacing the gold that was propping up the dollar that was worth $35 an ounce, this was not really right. a very good proposal. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to make fun of these ideas now, it has to be said that at the time, these, these were considered viable ways of propping up the global economy, which was a, you know, was a very serious, sober thing to do, but it, mm -hmm. it shows you how twisted and, um, and kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, how um, unsustainable the, the monetary system had become, that, that, that you would have someone seriously thinking that putting nuclear weapons in the ground is you know, a better way of propping up the world's monetary system as opposed to, say, changing the rules. Right. Uh, it just shows you how the logic had, had really become you know, kind of warped. And I think that's, that's part of the theme of my book, One Nation Under Gold, that for whatever reason, sometimes we're good, sometimes we're not so good, this metal has kind of warped the American mind over time and uh and we, we can't we can't stop it's it's this utter utter fascination with this substance well james this has been terrific i hope everyone will check out one nation under gold james thanks so much for joining us thank you for having me something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste and that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing In Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Oh, thank God for the limits. 
every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the weirdest things our government spends money on. Domingo, before the break, you mentioned that there were some clear-cut cases of wasteful government spending that are tough to dispute. So when you said that, what did you have in mind? <laughs> oh, man, where to begin? I'd say one of the worst I came across was the staggering $930 million that federal agencies spend on unnecessary printing charges each year. Like, this includes about $28 million just to print the congressional record. And that's a daily transcription of every word spoken in Congress. <laughs> so there are over 4,500 copies of this record printed every single day. Oh, my gosh. And the worst part is the whole thing is available online. Yeah, that's pretty much the definition of wasteful. <laughs> and I've, I've got another one here. So according to a 2013 report by the Office of the Inspector General, the government spent big on inside advertising to increase traffic to their Facebook and Twitter pages. How exciting <laughs> is that? Facebook and Twitter for government. All told, the State Department doled out $630,000 over the course of two years. And this was basically to buy more likes for their social media posts. Man, did they at least get the traffic they wanted? Well, no, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, although the State Department's pages did see an uptick in visitors, I think it was less than 2% of them actually liked or favorited any post. So not only was it a big waste of money, but I'm guessing it was kind of a blow to the government's pride, too. <laughs> you know, I almost feel bad for them. But what about how much is spent on the annual upkeep of vacant government buildings? Yeah, I, I remember you were looking into this, so I'll, I'll bite on this one. So how many of our tax dollars go to empty buildings? <laughs> way, way too many of them. So according to the L.A. Times, the government spends as much as $1.7 billion each year just to maintain the more than 770,000 vacant buildings it owns. And you want to talk about wasteful, even though the government already pays for all that unused space, some of the agencies continue to buy or lease new spaces rather than put the vacant ones to use. 770,000 vacant buildings? Mm -hmm. That is insane. Well, and it's, it's especially frustrating in cases like that where a little more communication could cause multiple problems to cancel each other out. I mean, in addition to easy workspace for employees, these buildings could be used as government storage. Take the IRS. I mean, the IRS alone has more than 20,000 pieces of unused office furniture. And rather than sell it or store it in government buildings, the agency pays nearly $1 million each year <laughs> to rent storage space. That's so crazy. But, you know, as crazy as these expenses are, if we want to find the weirdest government investments, we've got to talk about DARPA. Very good point. All right. So for those who haven't thought about DARPA lately or, or ever, the full name is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was created back in 1958 to help with the U.S. space race and quickly switched focus to developing technical innovations for defense. This was once NASA took over the space research. DARPA research has led to all kinds of breakthroughs from the first stealth aircraft, communication satellites and drones to the less military-minded inventions like driverless cars and robotic vacuum cleaners. Right, and if Roombas weren't weird enough, DARPA's also responsible for about 60 years' worth of really far-out robotics projects, many of which were never put to active use. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of this was called Eater. that's E-A-T-R, <laughs> also known as the Energy Autonomous Tactical Robot. I don't know if you saw this, Mango, but it was back in 2012. There were all these online rumors that the government was developing some kind of monstrous flesh-eating robot. <laughs> it was to be used in combat. What? I mean, I feel like I definitely remember about that. <laughs> well, thankfully, the rumors turned out to be exaggerated. Researchers clarified that Eater was strictly vegetarian, which is comforting, <laughs> seeing as the robot was equipped with a chainsaw and a powerful gripper arm. And this was to <laughs> help it collect plant-based biomass to use for energy. And the idea was that Eater could support troops in the battlefield without the need for conventional fuels. I mean, it's actually kind of cool. So hmm. instead, it would simply collect twigs, grass, paper, other plant materials to help power itself. And I like this statement from the CEO of the company that was funded by DARPA to help develop the robot. 
He said, we completely understand the public's concern about futuristic robots feeding on the human population, <laughs> but that is not our mission. That's super comforting. Still, for my money, you know, the scariest thing DARPA has worked on has to be their total information awareness project from way back in 2002. I mean, that does sound way scarier than man-eating robots. <laughs> I know. It was basically this massive counterterrorism database that was supposed to collect, process, and even analyze mine data to help prevent terrorist attacks. And as you'd imagine, there was a lot of pushback against what was essentially this electronic version of Big Brother. And if you thought the name was creepy, you've got to see the logo they came up with. They used the Eye of Providence symbol that's on the back of the dollar bill. You know, the pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top? Sure. Yeah. But then they managed to make it even more creepy by showing <laughs> it projecting a beam of light onto the surface of the entire planet. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, nothing unsettling about that. Now, not all their research is terrifying, though. One of the weirdest, coolest, and most non-threatening projects from DARPA is this robot that can play jazz music. <laughs> now, we already have artificial intelligence programs that can produce pseudo-original classical music by analyzing the work of human composers, but DARPA has its eyes set on robots that actually write and perform their own jazz songs. All I think about when you say this is the, like the, the creatures from Showbiz Pizza. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. They were so far ahead of their time, that showbiz. But tell me why jazz and how do musical robots like help with defense? Well, jazz was chosen because it would require the robots to improvise. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes sense. So in, in order to jam along with human musicians, the robots need to be able to think and react to the situation in real time. So the aim is to produce a form of AI that can make, you know, these spur of the moment decisions in response to constantly changing conditions, which is definitely a skill that would come in handy on a battlefield just as much as in a jazz club. So I, I can't believe you just convinced me that jazz playing robots are a smart investment, or at least <laughs> that they're not the worst way to spend our tax dollars. No, no, no not the worst. <laughs> but it's like we were saying earlier, so many of these seemingly outlandish projects don't sound nearly as crazy when they're given the proper context. So how about we try an experiment, Mango? Let's take a look at a couple of the country's most recent strange investments and see if they're as silly as they sound or if they're actually worth the money. I'm up for it, but uh, why don't we take a break for a quiz first? So Mango, who do we have on the line today? We've got Charles Morgan and Hubert Walker from the wonderful publication Coin Week. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, guys. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? Hi, thanks for having us. When people are getting into coin collecting, what are some of the mistakes they tend to make? So uh, the first one is that people who really get into a hobby really intensely in the beginning think that there's a race, that they need to buy everything they see because somehow they're all going to disappear and, and they're going to run out of time. And the fact of the matter is, like, nobody has ever assembled a coin collection that has everything. It's just, it's, it's probably not even possible. Uh, even if you, you know, even with Bezos' money, I don't think you could do it because huh. uh, you would run out of time. And then there would also be coins that would be so rare that maybe there's only one or two known and you have to convince the person who owns it to sell it to. But the second thing is one of the most profoundly stupid stories we have uh, covered in the last few years involved a guy who was an investor who bought a quarter million dollar gold coin from a one of those, you know, call the 800 numbers, listen to on radio kind of uh, gold dealers. And they sold him this, this amazing coin. Like any collector who is a real collector would have been just thrilled to own it. But he found that it had a flaw. It was a little bit dingy. So uh, he basically polished the life out of it. And by the time we saw it, it looked like costume jewelry, like something <laughs> that it didn't even look real anymore. I mean, it was, it was gold, so it looked like gold, but it was so shiny and it was a coin. It looked like something made to look like gold. And he still only got like five, $6,000 for it on, on auction. So I know you're used to dealing with much more valuable coins, but I was curious, what are your thoughts on getting rid of the penny? I'm personally in favor of a total coinage reform, which would include getting rid of the penny at least. And maybe the nickel. And if you think about it, there has never been a successful push to eliminate a piece of paper currency in favor of a coin uh, in the past uh, probably 100 or so years in this country. Uh, we used to actually make uh, currency notes called fractional currency, which were parts of a dollar. Uh, that was done during the Civil War because they didn't want to 
you know, used silver. It was precious and it was being hoarded. So they were making basically stamps that were money. But, uh, you know, when they tried to introduce the Susan B. Anthony dollar, it didn't replace the $1 bill. And the presidential dollar and the Sacagawea dollar also failed to do that. So from a minting industry standpoint, the elimination of any coin from circulation it, it is a slow death spiral for that as an industry. The second part is the good part. So in the United States, uh, we have essentially had the same coin structure since 1792. Uh, the coins were different, and there were some different denominations that don't exist anymore, like a half cent or a half dime or two cent or three cent piece. But in 1857, the United States Mint made a major coinage reform, which eliminated the half cent and the cent, uh, large cent size cent, which was, oh gosh, maybe in between the size of a half dollar and a quarter, essentially. That's how big the cent used to be. And they eliminated it in favor of the small size cent that we use today. Well, the elimination of that meant that there were cents that were made from 1793 to 1857, which are like now obsolete, and they were being redeemed and turned in and destroyed. Well, that's what started coin collecting in America as sort of a popular hobby. And so my opinion is if they eliminated the cent and the nickel, it would actually help coin collecting because people who grew up using those coins would realize they were no longer going to be available, and people would start looking for the different dates and mint marks and things like that. So for coin collectors, eliminating stuff like that is probably a good thing. But for the minting industry, it's not. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you guys are used to dealing with rare coins and much more valuable coins, but we're going to put you guys to the test with something a little more simple. Mango, what game are we playing today? We're playing the quarter quiz, and basically we're going to tell you what's on the back of a U.S. quarter, and you just have to tell us the state where it's from. Well, we're going to have you guys face off against one another, and in order to chime in, we're going to have you make some animal noises. So, Charles, you will chime in with a cow's moo, and Hubert, you will have the lovely caca. All right, so let's get started. Question number one. This state quarter has a picture of a common loon on it, though the phrase land of 10,000 lakes might be the bigger giveaway. Caca! <laughs> All right, so that's Hubert. What's the answer there? I think that would be Minnesota. Absolutely. Nicely done. Question number two. There are no slot machines or poker tables on the back of this state quarter. Just a pair of beautiful Mustangs running free. Uh, ooh. Ooh, that sounded like a very realistic cow. Okay, Charles, what do you think? I do my best. Uh, that would be Nevada. Absolutely. And Nevada is actually home to 50% of the nation's wild horses. Question number three. This state quarter has the phrase Crossroads of America on it, right under a picture of a race car. Okay, Hubert. Uh, Indiana. All right, well done. Question number four. Unlike North Carolina, which also features the Wright Brothers plane, this state quarter paired their plane with a picture of John Glenn in a spacesuit. <laughs> wow, Hubert just barely beats Charles with a caca. All right, what's the answer? It is Ohio. All right, question number five. This state quarter has a ring-necked pheasant in the foreground, though the pick of Mount Rushmore in the back might be more recognizable. I, I, why don't we give it to Charles? Yeah, that would, that would be the uh, South Dakota quarter. You got it. All right, question number six. This state has a bucking cowboy on it and is accompanied by the phrase, the Equality State. It's better known as the home of Dick Cheney. Ooh, this is also probably the worst coin design in the entire state quarter <laughs> series, and that would go to Wyoming. Wait, well, why, why do you think it's the worst uh, state design? Well, it's not because of the iconic image of the Bucking Cowboy. It's because there's no detail on it. It's just basically a silhouette. I mean, that's kind of boring, don't you think? <laughs> that is pretty boring. Okay, well, if I'm not mistaken, we are tied at three. So this is the very last question, the tiebreaker. Number seven, this state quarter has a picture of a peregrine falcon and the phrase, may it be forever in Latin. There are zero potatoes on it, however. Ah! <laughs> All right, Hubert for the win. Idaho. It is Idaho. All right, Mango, how are our contestants done? 
Well, uh, Hubert just barely edged out Charles, but it was a, a great competition. And as always, our, our winner gets a note to his mom or boss singing his praises. And because we don't want Charles to go home uh, empty-handed, we're going to send you home with the weirdest coin purse we could find online, a hedgehog coin purse. <laughs> I, I can't wait to use it. <laughs> well, congratulations, guys, and thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thanks so much, guys. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We will. Thank you. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Cannot believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Will, so it's time to live out the ultimate taxpayer fantasy. We're basically going to audit the U.S. government and see if any of their 2016 investments pass muster. Where do you want to start? All right. So here's one I want your opinion on. The researchers at MIT developed a new program to view 600 hours of television shows and 400 hours of online videos to see if they could learn about and anticipate human behavior. So with this, do you think the government was right to foot the bill for a couch potato computer? (laughs) I'm not falling for this. I feel like I need some more information. (laughs) So tell me what I watched. Well, the program was trying to anticipate actions like hugs, kisses, high fives, (laughs) and handshakes. So the researchers had to watch tons of YouTube videos and hours and hours of Desperate Housewives, The Office, and Scrubs, to name a few. Which isn't a bad plan, but like, what was the end goal? I mean, is the government really interested in like saving people from... Being left on high fives? (laughs) Well, the real hope is that with enough time and enough binge watching, the program could be used in security cameras as a way to automatically call for help if it identifies that somebody's about to be injured or that a crime is about to be committed. It's actually pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So um, why don't we try another one? Since it's beach season, let's look at the $3 million study the National Science Foundation did on how background music affects viewers' perception of sharks. But before I go into more detail, I'm going to give you how the Internet framed the study's conclusion. 
So here it is. The theme music from Jaws caused people to view sharks in a negative manner. What? <laughs> is that, that's it? I mean, I'm not going to say we got ripped off, but it does strike me as a fairly obvious conclusion. I mean, the Jaws theme was composed to feel ominous. It follows that the song would make viewers wary of whatever's played alongside it, whether that's sharks or whatever. <laughs> Which is a totally fair response. Now, let me fill in some of the gaps and we'll see if it changes your opinion. So as part of the study, researchers determined that the public's negative perception of sharks is actually hindering conservation efforts. And we tend to ignore cases where sharks are exploited or abused, and we donate less money to shark conservation programs than we do to similar programs for other creatures. I mean, that's a little sad, but again, is this surprising? Our culture has a bad habit of blowing shark-on-human violence way <laughs> out of proportion, especially when you look at all the Jaws and Sharknados of the world. So what what is the angle here? <laughs> well, according to the NSF, and I'm quoting here, participants rated sharks more negatively and less positively after viewing a 60-second video of swimming sharks set to ominous background music, compared to participants who watched the same video clip set to uplifting background music or silence. And here's the thing, right? Like, researchers didn't use footage from Jaws or other horror flicks. They used a clip from the BBC's Blue Planet Nature series, which just showed sharks, like, swimming around and being sharks. So basically, the study is a warning about making educational content that borrows too heavily from the Hollywood shark playbook? Yeah, pretty much. So the study's actual non-inflammatory conclusion was, quote, Given that nature documentaries are often regarded as objective and authoritative sources of information, it is critical that documentary filmmakers and viewers are aware of how the soundtrack can affect the interpretation of the educational content. All right, I think I see where you're going with this. And... You know, suddenly a laughable research study doesn't seem quite as ridiculous, but I mean, $3 million? Was it really worth that much? Yeah, I mean, I guess that depends on how the educational community responds to the findings and, of course, whether or not you like sharks. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, you know, this might sound silly, but auditing the government is much harder than I thought it would be. There are just so many angles from which you can analyze these expenses, and they all make a certain amount of sense. I mean, our country spent $125,000 on a 3D printer that can create edible pizzas for astronauts. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, that's exorbitant, but on the other, do we really want to be the kind of people who would deny astronauts pizza? <laughs> I don't. I know. I mean, there are real benefits to even the most ridiculous-sounding investments, but balancing those potential benefits against the real-world costs, I mean, that can all be dizzying. That's why it's so important to try and keep things in perspective when looking at these weird government investments. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, just like with the threat of sharks or that 1% of funding goes to foreign aid, we have a way of making these weird expenses out to be way bigger problems than they really are. Take those government waste books, for example. They document billions spent on questionable grants and programs, but even all $19 billion of that is only half of 1% of the $3.9 trillion federal budget. Mm. So while it's definitely not something we should ignore, it doesn't make as much of an impact on the government's bottom line as you'd think. No, that's actually pretty comforting. I mean, I want people to like sharks and I want astronauts to eat pizza. So if those things can happen at no huge cost to the country, I consider that a win in my book. <laughs> well, hold on to that feeling, Will, because it's time for the fact off. Bring it on, Mango. <laughs> All right, so I'll kick it off. Ever wonder where all those old neon signs go when they burn out? In 2010, $1.8 million was given to construct a neon sign graveyard near Las Vegas. And I mean, I clearly want to check this place out. Yeah, I kind of do too. All right, well, Mango, you and I both have young sons who are very curious about video games. <laughs> they're doing the whole Minecraft thing now, but it won't be long before they're begging to play games like World of Warcraft. And it turns out there could be some good money in this. The creators of one study received $2.9 million to look into how online virtual worlds such as World of Warcraft and Second Life can help organizations collaborate and compete more effectively in the global marketplace. <laughs> Have you ever been to Denali National Park? I haven't. Well, when you do, I'm sure the animals and mountains and stuff will be pretty cool to look at, but be sure to check out the toilets because they've got some seriously fancy new ones. Oh, yeah. Or at least they'd better be fancy at $41,000 per seat. With 36 toilets, that comes out to $1.5 million. Wow. All right. Well, I'll try to swing by right after I visit the home for the U.S. ambassador to NATO in Brussels to see the 960 violets, 960 tulips, 960 begonias, 504 ivy geraniums, <laughs> 
and lots of other plants totaling $704,000 for this one residence. I feel like he uh, cut the budget on the ivy geraniums. There. Yeah, I know. I know. Everything was at 960 until the ivy geranium. So last year, the government allocated like close to a million dollars to post poems in zoos throughout the country. The poems are there to, quote, increase environmental awareness. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness for that one. All right. I'm not sure if you remember this ad back in 2010, but the government invested $2.5 million on what would later become known as the worst Super Bowl (laughs) ad ever. So back in 2012, then-Congressman Mark Newman noted that he wanted to save taxpayers $175,000 by cutting the funding for a study on, quote, the connection between cocaine and the risky sex habits of the Japanese quail. (laughs) Risky quail sex. Wow. (laughs) I know. And while the study was really intended to help researchers understand the connection between drug abuse and sex habits and public health options, I want to see a study on coked up quails. (laughs) All right. I'm with you on this one, Mango. That seems like the most necessary use of government money we've talked about all day. So I'm going to give this one to you. Congrats. Thank you. And that's it for today's Part-Time Genius. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.